0: This is Patrick Daly, and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a program about connections, international business, supply chains, and globalization, and the effects these have had on our life, our work, and our travel over recent times. In today's program, I'm joined again by my colleagues from the Supply Chain Special Interest Group of the Society for the Advancement of Consulting to talk to them about how they are helping clients at this time. To cope with inflation and higher interest rates that are affecting companies operating in Europe, America and Australia alike. So on Interlinks today, we have joining me from Brisbane, Australia, David Ogilvie, founder and principal of David Ogilvie Associates. Welcome, David.
1: Hey Patrick, nice to be with you again. You're very
0: welcome. And from Phoenix, Arizona, in the USA, we have Diane Garcia, president of Lorraine Consulting. Welcome, Diane.
2: Good morning. Hi, Patrick. Hi, David.
0: So, uh, David, I might turn to you first. So, rising inflation and higher interest rates than we've been used to for a long time are now here. Um, So, what kind of challenge does this represent for, for your clients Um, And how are these challenges kind of manifesting themselves in in day-to-day operations?
1: Well, Patrick, as you know, uh, a lot of um, the current circumstances is following very quickly after some very large supply chain disruptions. And one of the first knee-jerk reactions in many ways for many organisations was to... um, buy more stock so the you know the thought process was um, if we have it then we can sell it if we you know don't have it we may not be able to get it and so there was a large influx of 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 inventory um, uh, purchased by a lot of companies and so you know with it with the interest rates um, going up as quickly as they have in the short period of time uh, since they first started to move I guess there's a, a real focus on how companies are utilising their capital and where they can get their capital from, and what's the best uh, use of that capital. And um, often, you know, having high levels of inventory and uh, is not always the uh, the best uh, best use of, the, of of their capital. So I think that's the first thing that's come to mind.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, uh, I guess if they have high levels of uh, inventory they've got working capital tied up in 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 that inventory which is not very efficient and as we know inefficiency is kind of a, a manifestation of inflation or it leads to inflation so one way to address inflation I guess I'll put this to you Diane is to improve productivity in our use of labor, our use of energy, and other resource inputs like, like inventory. So what, what, what are you seeing or or what would you suggest uh, to companies out there about identifying, prioritizing, and going after productivity improvements?
2: Well, that's a great, great question. Um, mainly, I would say this year, um, the priority or the focus with my clients has been on like you said, the efficiency and the productivity, especially around how we schedule the backlog and prioritize key customer, uh, you know, projects and, and orders. Because there are quite a bit of uh, clients on that I'm seeing that have still a big backlog. They still are trying to manage those high inventories. Um, but how do you prioritize those key accounts and how do you prioritize and schedule all the way down to the production floor. Uh, so, so it supports and you're, and you're not, you know, holding inventories that you don't need at the moment or that you're not driving, uh, you know, uh, things that perhaps may sit. I was just visiting a client last week and they have a, issue where, you know, lots of different processes come together and some things in the, in the process may finish earlier than others. And so then it ends up sitting and waiting um, while other things that are needed for that week or that day, uh, you know, do not get prioritized. So there's a lot of activity around how do you make sure things get done at the right time. And, uh, and how do you effectively manage the backlog so it's a it's a huge step I think the the biggest thing that I'm working with clients on around it is the scheduling process and how do you support um prioritizing within the details of this of the shop floor on the schedule
0: mm. so do you think maybe there was a knee-jerk reaction when the supply chains seized up there was a knee-jerk reaction to get inventory at all costs and now there's a situation where there's an overhang in inventory of certain types and because patterns perhaps changed through the uh the pandemic and so on that what the demand is for now is perhaps different than what it was before and there's a mismatch then between the inventories they have and the inventories they ought to have. Is that is that something you see?
2: Oh yeah I agree. And and I think David you know brought it out very well at the beginning is that uh, the focus was whatever, especially during the pandemic and the start of it, whatever whatever you can get, whatever we think we may sell, you know, bring it in, make sure we secure that supply. And now, you know we do I do see that clients are holding uh, some of that existing and remaining inventory. And I do think that like David David mentioned, um, trends are shifting and so now we have to work on how do we manage effectively those inventories. Um, yes I, I
1: i had a similar similar client uh, recently similar project recently with a client where um you know they're having a lot of difficulty getting chassis and so forth and 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 the moving around of the of the schedule production schedule was creating chaos in many spaces because you know they needed to be very careful what they moved uh the production schedule to because they may not have had the the inventory for those particular items uh because they weren't originally scheduled so you know shifting that schedule can think can create a lot of a lot of issues down downstream. So you know getting that balance right around the inventory and and, and keeping the turns up and making good use of that capital when it's deployed in inventory is really important. So and, and then actually Catherine,
2: you, but, yeah, you mentioned ahead. the trends piece, one of the other uh strategies we're working on with clients, I'm sure David does this in his day to day is uh, on the trends that you mentioned. So uh, in a process that I work with on clients, uh, the sales, inventory, and operations process, one of the key pieces, especially in the more recent times, has been on those mix changes and product changes and customer demand changes and watching those trends so that you then will be able to effectively switch gears, whatever, however you may need to, to support that. So.
0: David, I know you do a lot of work with clients, helping them with their ERP systems uh, selections and implementations to better manage their supply chains. So how can companies utilise or leverage their um, information systems and their capabilities to offset or to mitigate some of the effects of high inflation?
1: Well, it's really important to make sure that the configuration of of the ERP system you've got is going to support um, at least two fundamental components of my supply chain model, and that is visibility and velocity of information. So it's it, it's uh, it's really how you you configure the system to, uh, to, to and 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 set up the supporting infrastructure, the enablers behind that around you know real time data capture or the integrations that you might have with other suppliers and so forth. So it's really a a. Uh, a delicate mix, if you like, around a recipe to make sure that all of the components are, are there in, in the right quantities. And and, and each
0: you mentioned speed and visibility, which is kind of um an, an, an outcome of how you would configure and utilize the system. Is that something that's often missed by the, the people who um the people in the on the company side and the consultants who are helping them to implement
1: the ERP systems. Uh, yes. So, so, for example, with with that project where we had the difficulty with the chassis, of, of course, it's 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 about improving the speed at which the information about the availability of those chassis was getting to the client, uh, and there were often, in some cases, some very basic things. Um, that we're stepping uh, out of the way. It can, can be as simple as the process that you're using to follow up on, on outstanding orders, uh, whether you can get the ERP system to help automate some of that rather than having somebody actually making a phone call or sending an email. There are some act, techno, technological uh, aspects that you can bring to the table to help improve both the visibility and the velocity of that information.
0: Okay. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, uh, visibility and velocity is going to contribute to efficiency and productivity, which is a kind of a, an inflation-busting uh, strategy to to adopt.
1: And right. I guess yeah, I- if nothing else, Patrick. It 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 helps with the decision making. You know, the sooner you know about these things, you know, you can make different decisions based based on the information that you do have. So the sooner you can get those things there, the better decisions you can make.
0: Okay. Gives you that that little bit of advantage. And I guess if you do make those improvements, it gives you choices that other people don't necessarily have, which I guess is if everybody's raising their prices and you have become more efficient, you could either raise your prices as well and take, take the extra margin or hold your prices tight and gain maybe market share, depending on which way you want to go with it. Right.
1: That's exactly right.
0: So uh, I know from talking to you both, together and separately uh, before um, and given that you live in kind of quite different parts of the world that you have slightly different views and take on on what's going on how long it's going to last and what the what the future might hold so uh diane I i'm talking to you and 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 lisa and so some of these opinions might might be uh, lisa's as 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 well as yours or instead of yours but um I, i get from you guys that you've a fairly upbeat view in the longer term with regard to America and its prospects for the future with regard to uh, inflation and interest rates and so on. So, so what is your view on that? And what are the main considerations that kind of bring you to a more of a kind of an upbeat um, assessment of, of the future?
2: Oh, that's a good question. I, I think I'm always upbeat and optimistic, Patrick. <laughs> I, I think overall, the uh, the the, the U.S., I mean, I'll talk on the U.S. perspective, uh, lots of uh, companies that we're working with or, you know, within the supply chains of, of clients that I have are, you know, moving and insourcing or nearshoring uh, their supply chains to the near the U.S. And there's a lot of talk about what countries are you know supporting that kind of movement and that reconfiguration and supply chain. So I do see uh, here in the U.S. It's uh, they're they're bringing it's a huge market. So they, a lot of those companies and supply chains are moving, um, which is going to not only attract uh, you know more talent, and it's going to uh, ensure that the that you know there's plenty of uh, innovation and and exciting things to come in the future are going to happen here in the U.S. So I think that's a big contributor. Is that I I see that movement coming into the US and near the US. Um I think overall that like you mentioned the word was long term. There's still a lot to weather. And I know that, you know, we're kind of recession, nearing recession, uh, we'll be in a recession, but I do think that in the long term there's a lot of opportunity. And I I think the word that I mainly have been using or just mentioned was innovation, because I do think that there's going to be quite a bit of changes. There have been a lot of changes in Uh, the technologies that support the supply chain. So whether that be ERP or BI or analytical tools, I I think that we're going to gain more insights around uh, the supply chain. So I just see that there's a lot of excitement that all of these disruptions and things that we've had to navigate have brought on. And I think it'll continue to bring that on.
0: Yeah. That's interesting as well. People talk about the regionalization of supply chains and maybe the center of gravity of the global economy is kind of fragmenting, so you're going to have kind of an American cluster, a kind of European cluster, Far Eastern cluster. So you can see countries like um, Mexico and Canada, Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, becoming kind of a, a cluster around the United States and a kind of a, a supply chain, uh, a regional supply chain in in that region growing and becoming becoming stronger. Do you, do, you, do you see that?
2: Yes. Yeah. I think the countries you just named, it's a very good example. It's between, and and I think that there's places like a Canada that, you know, maybe weren't as uh, looked at in the same light. And now we're, I think clients and it's, it's, you know, recommend recommendations on places that are just nearby or close or that we have good relationships with. So, yeah, I do see that, that happening. I, I don't think it's quite as regionalized as it could be, but I do think that that Trend or that supply chain reconfiguration
0: is happening. Ninety-three point nine, Dublin South FM. So, uh, David, um, I know that you see the tensions between the U.S. and China over Taiwan as kind of a major potential risk for Australia. So, how do you assess that risk, and what do you think would be the consequences? Say, of a shooting war over over Taiwan, and what should Australian and indeed other companies and other parts of the world be thinking about? Uh, by way of preventive and mitigating actions, if 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 there was an issue there with with China.
1: Well, it, it's interesting you say that, Patrick, because that's part of the reason why I'm not quite so optimistic as Diane. I, while I, I I'm not um, uh, I'm not uh, pessimistic. Uh, I am not quite as I'm hopeful, but not quite as optimistic. Um, if if uh, if we do get a shooting war, I think we are in big trouble. And uh, I said this at one of my. Ah, uh, business owner and CEO lunches recently, and I was asking them the question: You know, what happens to your business if if China does um, uh, invade Taiwan and we are involved in a war? What does that do to your business? And in most cases, uh, China will just simply stop supplying. Uh, and that will uh, be quite devastating for many, many businesses. And um, that that ability to nearshore or reshore that is like it's happening in the US, I'm not quite sure is is quite as um, as much of an option here. While we have a, a new government here and they are changing many things and they are talking about trying to uh, bring manufacturing back to this country, I'm still not as um, uh, sanguine, I guess, around um, what the cost of energy is going to do to that, and whether that's going to be able to help facilitate that, or whether it's going to be an inhibitor uh, to that. But uh, more on the on the government in our space too. I mean, they are a more left-leaning government now, and there is industrial uh, legislation before our parliament as we speak, and uh, there is there is a high concern here that that's going to Bring our industrial landscape back to the 1970s, where we have have uh, massive strikes and uh, multi multi industry strikes, and and you'll be able to um, take work workforces out in other industries, even though that they're not related to the industry where the dispute uh, is is involved. So that is is quite concerning for businesses in this country. And um, and that is certainly something that uh, executives are going to have to start to plan around and have some contingent actions in place should that happen.
0: Yeah. I would think as well Australian businesses should be looking a lot at your, your neighbouring countries. There are ways, if you like, that you're similar to the US and then different, the sense perhaps your economy is more advanced, say, than the likes of some of your neighbors, um, Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia. Yeah, so, yeah, so, the population wise, you're much smaller than they are, which makes you different. So I get, but yeah. I guess the, 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 it has to be a factor for the future, that area, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we are a part of Asia. Uh, that's, you know, we're probably the only Caucasian country in the area in many respects, as multicultural as we are. Uh, but the reality is uh, we are a part of Asia, and uh, that is probably our first step, is to go to places like Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, those sorts of places as, uh, as, as an option. Um, but having said that, I'm still keeping an eye on those Latin American countries that you just mentioned before because there's nothing stopping Australia because it's, it's only the Pacific Ocean between us. Um, and um, you know those trade routes could be could be utilized so I, I think we are well placed in that space because we do have other options uh, available to us if we just want to look
0: yeah actually facing you on that pacific coast of America as some of the maybe not so well known but more dynamic economies in in the south American continent which are from the top to the bottom would be Colombia Peru and Chile and they're yes. all looking looking at you across the Pacific Ocean. And those economies are quite uh, dynamic, albeit you know they're, they're still developing economies. But there's probably a lot of opportunity there as well.
1: I, that, I would agree entirely. I, I just don't think people are looking uh, east; they just keep looking west. Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm going to give you both the kind of a, a view that I have, and maybe you can ask me questions or pick some holes in it if 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 you wish. But some some of the things I'm I'm thinking about. Is that one one view of interest rates? So interest rates are rising, but then again, they've been abnormally low for a long time. So really they're probably normalizing. So we'll see where they settle, but they might settle around three or four percent or something like that, which is kind of normal in the long in the long run. And that's probably better and healthier in terms of the allocation of capital um uh, to, to, to 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 worthwhile projects because when money's very cheap. Um, gets kind of sprayed all over the place uh, and often not not a great effect. So that's that's one thing. And, and kind of my view of inflation, although it's quite acute and it seems to be kind of getting embedded a little bit, but really it is due mostly to short-term shock. So one short-term shock. And when I say short-term, I mean things that are happening over periods of months to a few years. Um, so... COVID would be a short-term uh, shock and the after effect of COVID on the supply chain is a short-term shock, which will work itself out and indeed is working itself out. And then the war, we don't know how long it's going to go on, but, you know, it's not going to go on forever. So I don't know, maybe a year, maybe more. We, we, we don't, we don't know. But again, in the in the big scheme of things, it's a short-term shock that's introduced um, inflation in, in economies. But, um, there are kind of overarching trends. And I think some of our big overarching trends are deflationary. Um, and these are trends that happen over several years to decades, and they don't really change. It doesn't matter if you know, you have some headbanger elected to president in some country, or you have a war kicking off somewhere else, or you have um, a pandemic, another pandemic. These things kind of just keep going. So for example, one is is demographics. So notwithstanding the fact that we hit 8 billion as a world population this week, um, populations are already declining in lots of um, developed countries, and they're even going to start declining in in China. And we may even see sooner than people think the actual world population begin to decline, maybe within a couple of decades, may never get to 10 billion. It may kind of stabilize around nine and then 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 start to come down so that i think is inherently deflationary um a, a declining population and an aging population i think also the technological advances that we're looking at that we're really only scratching the surface in terms of even what's there that we don't know how to use yet and what's what's coming and i think that's going to give rise to huge efficiency and productivity that's probably deflationary and then We have climate change, it's happening, um, and that's pushing a move to renewables. And some renewables now are becoming cheaper and less prone to these shocks than fossil fuels, which invariably are produced by countries that have headbangers at the head of them, like Venezuela and Russia and so on. Um, So um, those things kind of make me think that, you know, five years' time, we might be looking at deflation as a problem rather than inflation. Uh, and we have declining populations or will have declining populations. And I think that's going to bring a unique set of challenges because they're quite the opposite to what we're going through now. Nobody's really ever managed an economy with declining and aging populations before. Maybe Japan is kind of in the vanguard and we can look to Japan as a as a pattern. Um, you know, in Japan, they actually sell more incontinence products for Adults than they do diapers for babies or nappies as 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 we would call them. So what do you think? What do you think of that particular view that I've just set out there? Am I am I nuts or what do you think? Well,
1: I I think there's a lot of uh, logic to what you're talking about there, uh, Patrick. Particularly around the population, there's not not a lot we can do about that in any any short term. No. Um, and let's let's be honest, we've got a talent problem at the moment in most countries. Um, Australia's population growth is is uh, very small. Naturally, uh, we are very reliant on, on on immigration to to help grow our population and bring our talent pool in. Uh, I think every country is looking for talent at the moment, and so. Um, as a country, we need to become more attractive to immigrants to come here because they have a broad choice at the moment. Lots of countries are looking for, for, for qualified people. So I think you're 100% right. I don't think that's going to necessarily fix itself uh, overnight. Yeah. And uh, Diane, any any comments?
2: Well, I think, uh, I think like David said here, I wouldn't disagree with what you're uh, seeing conjured up here. Uh, we do have quite a bit of uh, challenges, very long term, with the talent pool and how do we bridge this talent gap that we're in. And I, I think that innovation is a piece of it, but I don't think it solves it in the short term, or maybe even the medium term is an, is another one I'll throw out there. So, I I think I, I guess Patrick, I was going to ask you how do you see for the long term or five years on the European end of things? Is is there a regional supply chain that's forming? There and that this will be something they have to navigate as well. Yeah,
0: I've seen I've seen evidence of you know here in Ireland we have lots of um, multinational companies who've set up here to service the EMEA area as they call it Europe, Middle East, and and Africa, and and those guys you know we have pharmaceuticals, we've medical devices, we've uh, uh, tech and so on. A lot of those guys would be bringing. Um, materials and ingredients from far and wide to here to manufacture their their products. And I've noticed some of them changing, introducing dual supply and having a closer to home supply. So say they have something coming from China or from India, um, they'll also have another, they're putting in place another one, maybe in Slovenia, maybe in Turkey, maybe in, in Morocco. Um, so that regionalization is is happening in in Europe as well, and I think the invasion of Ukraine has driven Europe together. Uh, like there was there were problems with uh, unity and internal squabbles and so on in the European Union, and um, the the threat from Russia has kind of cleared the the slate a bit in in that sense. So we're seeing more more unity, and we're seeing a big shift away from dependence on Russian energy particularly gas, uh, but also oil, and a big push towards renewables. So countries like um, the UK and and Germany um, are really looking to other alternatives, particularly particularly Germany. So, yeah, Europe is going through a major change. And because we don't really have, apart from uh, the North Sea, where there's gas and oil, um, that... Uh, Norway and the United Kingdom are basically the the, the extractors there. We don't really have a lot in terms of um, uh, energy production here, fossil fuels. And fracking is very problematic. Places are very highly densely populated and so on. So it's not so easy as it is in in America or Canada. So I think we're going to see a big big push towards alternative energy in in Europe. And some of that energy is, is quite cheap once you get the infrastructure in place and makes you quite self-sufficient uh, in the long run. So we may see that. That's that's something I'm looking looking to in the next 5, 10, 15 years. Um, so, yeah, I think we're, we're in for major change. But we are extremely demographically challenged, particularly in the eastern and southern part of, of the continent. The countries to the west and the north, like the UK, like France, like here in Ireland where I am, uh, the populations are still growing, not fast, but they're still growing, but they're already declining in eastern europe and uh, and southern europe so that's going to be a major major challenge patrick what about africa uh, africa is where most of the population growth is going to be in the in the future so um, i think africa could have a population of 4 billion in a, in, a, in a few decades so it would would be a major um, Uh, player in terms of population will it will it develop economically well the the promise is is there um and there are signs of it and you can see even though the population is growing family size is declining in in africa because affluence is increasing because healthcare is is increasing so i think there's a lot of potential in um, certain countries in in Africa uh in East Africa and West Africa um like countries like like Ghana countries like Nigeria Kenya uh, Tanzania so yeah I think there's a I think there's a there's a I, I won't say a bright future because you never really can tell but there's there's certainly the potential for um huge changes in in Africa I think as yeah. well they might they might jump a lot of the Legacy Technologies in the same way that they jumped um uh, la- la- terrestrial telephony straight into mobile telephony they may do the same with energy um, yeah. they've done the same with banking, you know, they've gone straight from no banking to electronic banking Um. so yeah, a- Africa I think is a place where there's going to be a lot of people interested, you know, the Chinese are very interested, the Europeans have a long Uh, tradition of involvement in Africa the Americans are looking to Africa as well so you know it could be
1: that's that's the thing with China right they've got a lot of investment in lots of these places like in in Cambodia for example they've got very high investment in Cambodia as does Russia Um, but the political environment in Africa is probably not as stable as it as it needs to be would that be fair
0: uh, yes, a lot of those countries are very problematic and of course they're very different. We talk about Africa as if it was um, one one thing. it's it's probably the most diverse continent um, on Earth. It's also because of the way because of the way world maps work, you know the scaling on world maps, it looks a lot smaller relative to the other parts of the world than it really is, but it's 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 so big uh, that it's kind of hard to get your get your head around it. Um, Europe would literally fit into a corner of Africa. All of Europe. So um, yeah, we I I don't think we quite appreciate um, the impact that Africa is going to have in the future.
1: And there's also a, 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 a belief that uh, India is not um, going to be the competitor to China that people thought it might have been because it's a, a democracy. Have you got a view on that?
0: Uh, my, <laughs> Well I I read recently that um China's population is, has about just peaked now is going to decline and India is just take overtaking uh China in its in its population and um India's population is going to continue to grow so India's going to become the the most populous country in in the world. Um, China's population is going to decline quite fast I think China's going to have difficulty maintaining its 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 growth rates. And I think those kind of command economies uh, have have problems and they're going to have problems getting on, getting beyond being a, a middle income economy. India is very, very messy. So it is a democracy and it's very, very messy. So it's very hard to to predict uh, where where they're going to go. They have lots of challenges with infrastructure. They're not good at delivering infrastructure, but they're very good at delivering um uh, technology and uh, innovation so i would think india may be china in some aspects of the economy and and vice versa but i i think china i think china's hitting headwinds um and uh, we, we'll see that over the next 5 10 15 years hmm. interesting okay so uh, again uh, the clock is against us so we'll have to we'll have to give it a wrap here so um delighted to have both of you on again it was a pleasure as always and uh, look forward to talking to you again next month on this and other other topics thank you patrick
2: yeah.
0: thank you patrick thanks david all the best uh, so thanks again to david and and diane thanks also to our listeners for tuning in once again and until next time keep well and stay safe